Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up on today's programme, my guest today, Emily Isahau and Fabian Kinsman. They're both here with their views, of course, of the week's big stories. Emily, good morning. Very good to see you this morning. You've shared lots of stories before we've gone on air, but we'll talk about those later. Uh, what have you got uh, on your front pages for us? Good morning, Tyler. I don't think we can avoid the story, evolving story from Israel-Palestine today. Um, but if we have the time, it's, of course, been the Nobel Week as well. Um, so we can have a recap of um, the prices. Very good. We'll be heading to Tel Aviv uh, in a moment, of course, from for the latest uh, from Israel. Also, our design editor, Nick Moniz, will bring us his view from London, and we'll get the latest from France. This is Mary Fitzgerald, Monocle correspondent in Marseille, and I'll be bringing you the news from France and the wider Mediterranean later this morning. And we'll also speak to the founders of Hidden Sounds and get the latest from Aurelia Rauch about the Freeze Art Festival coming up in London. It's the 8th of October, 2023. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. And good morning from a very uh, sunny Zurich. Very autumnal. Uh, does feel like uh, definitely summer is is over, but it's it, but it's still sort of clinging on uh, at the same time. Uh, Emily Isahau is here, as I said. Uh, also, uh, Fabian Kinzelman uh, from the Handelszeitung. Good morning. Very good to see you. Good morning, Tyler. Good to see you. Nice to see you. Of course, we're looking at the monitors here. Uh, we know what story is dominating. As we said, uh, we'll be heading uh, to Tel Aviv in a moment to speak to one of the correspondents um, from Haaretz. But as you watch this uh, un- unfolding, it's it's kind of fascinating. Emily, also from, of course, from uh, your perch as well, uh, for, uh, of course, listeners uh, who don't know your voice uh, and don't know your your day gig. Uh, of course, you're the program coordinator for peace mediation uh, at Eteha here in Zurich. But I want to start with both of you as we watch the story unfolding um, on our screens. And I think also listen to and, and look at all of the comment pieces, the headlines and papers all over the world. The, the one word that sort of keeps coming up is blindsided, uh, that this is extraordinary uh, that this happened. Uh, that, if, that this is a failure of Israeli intelligence uh, and, and really uh, h- how is this attack sort of mounted without a- any sort of whispers at all that were picked up. Um, again, a surprise from your side and, and what you'll be looking at for your front pages uh, this week. Exactly. Um, I think that's exactly what you're describing. Like, we were all shocked. We didn't expect it. And that's because Israel doesn't, didn't expect it. And that's like kind of a parallel we're seeing to the traumatic war 50 years ago, which started exactly 50 years ago. Um, so this is also like a symbolic um, kind of war the Hamas started here. Um, Emily, this is, uh, I guess, it, sort of down page, I think, when you're lo- when I was looking at uh, a variety of, of different papers this morning, uh, whether it was Le Monde, uh, whether it's been looking at NZZ, The Times. Um, as you go down page, uh, you, of course, get to the mediation story, the lack of mediation story as well, saying that this is also, it's not been top of agenda uh, for the Biden administration uh, to ensure that uh, bridges are being mended or, of course, looking for uh, a proper two-state solution um, from, again, from your media. Mediation uh, side of the world is—is is it that type of, of failure? Because mm-hmm. it's interesting looking at, um, at one of the op-eds this morning saying this is when things fester this long. Of course, uh, you know they do become a tinderbox, and this is what we're seeing right now. Well, it speaks to the kind of why did this happen now, and 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 why would Hamas undertake such a kind of a drastic measure in this um, uh, time? And and one of them is indeed the hopelessness in terms of no way out of this conflict um, through a negotiated um, process. Perhaps, for instance, the Biden administration, their focus has been on normalizing relations, perhaps between the Saudis and Israel. Um, so definitely, of course, there's also the symbolic nature of uh, 50 years ago. 
there's Israeli division that perhaps uh, Hamas wanted to take advantage of, kind of historic division within Israeli uh, political and uh, uh, society. Um, so absolutely. Um, and I think what this will happen uh, do inevitably is that the world and the U.S. administration will have to refocus on the Middle East and Israel-Palestine in particular. Uh, I want to just uh, maybe uh, focus our lens on another story. We, we were kind of, it's, it's the period of, of, of elections, rather significant elections uh, all over Europe, uh, of course, a little bit earlier in the headlines uh, we were talking about, of course, Bavaria goes to the polls uh, today. Uh, and, and certainly we've got election in Poland uh, coming up. And, and of course, as you go around Switzerland at the moment, as we were talking about before going on air, you know, you can't sell breakfast cereal. Uh, you can't sell a new car in this country uh, when it comes to out-of-home advertising because every single bit of poster space is taken up right now by various parties uh, because uh, elections are upon us. And you were talking, uh, and it, it, it's, it's amazing, um, I think, the sloganeering that you see, um, not to mention... You'd really want to be a portrait photographer right now. You don't have to be a very good one because I'm sort of I'm amazed uh, right. by, by just in Switzerland you know, how much of it is still maybe not down to the statement, uh, but also just having yeah a headshot uh, and your party's uh, logo uh, around uh, as well. But any interesting uh, campaigning elements that have caught your eye uh, here in Switzerland, Fabian? I, I mean, the obvious thing is that like. Uh, when you're in the city, like it seems like no one is like voting anything else, but like the green liberals, for example. Um, but as soon as you go out to the countryside, you only see like the SVP signs popping up everywhere. But so yeah, and I guess for our, our listeners who are not uh, familiar, I mean, I think everyone knows where the Green Party sits, but but the SVP, of course, is the is yeah, you say the heartland stronghold, uh, and and of course a right of center party as well. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and from for your side, Emily. Well, actually, the funniest uh, elections campaign I've seen in Switzerland was yesterday, and not by a single political party, not by a single candidate, by Aldi. Um, the supermarket chain because they completely had taken advantage of the current mood in Switzerland and they had a picture of one of their staff members and the campaign slogan was choose Aldi. Um, so I thought that was a rather sneaky way of advertising for your business. But of course, I was also analyzing um, the proper uh, political campaigns yesterday and, and trying to analyze them. And I was relatively surprised, say, for instance, by Green Liberal Party, that the appearance of it compared to some of the other parties wasn't actually so fresh and, and perhaps kind of uh, not as modern as I would have expected, whereas, say, the FDP, even SVP to some degree, have rather flashy, kind of cool-looking pictures, and surprisingly, GLP had slightly old-looking graphic design that I feel like I could have maybe done on PowerPoint. Perhaps that's a bit speaking in hyperboles, but from a party like GLP, I would have expected a bit more. Um, which uh, you've given us a perfect segue, of course, uh, to, to bring uh, uh, in our uh, very own Nick uh, Menis, uh, our design editor, who is uh, with us in London uh, this morning. Good morning, Nick. Good morning, Tyler. I, I really do like that as a, I guess, segue into me. I, I feel like so often I see <laughs> graphic design that does look like it's being done on PowerPoint. So maybe it's an intentional thing. Maybe I'm, I'm missing a trick here. Yeah, you could be, uh, and and I think that there is there is definitely a story to be done. I'm not sure it's going to be a full monocle, 16 page expo uh, on uh, election posters uh, here in this country. But it 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 sort of it almost sort of throws down the gauntlet a little bit uh, when you think about the agencies that are representing that are looking after you know, not insignificant budgets for these parties as well. 
that there has to be more cut through because as I said, it's the same headshots and either your logo is going to be green or it's going to be red or something in between. Uh, and, and then when it actually comes to sort of outstanding copywriting, I'm, I'm, sort, of, I'm sort of missing it. Nevertheless, Nick, um, I want to, uh, to maybe head a little bit east uh, because you've got a fantastic story, uh, which is just, uh, well, I, I, I would imagine ink is hitting page right now uh, somewhere on the other side of the border in Germany for our November issue. Um, but I want um, you to give our listeners a bit of a sneak preview of your tour uh, around the Czech Republic. I would love to. So we, we I guess, did some good old-fashioned journalism and, and dispatched me to uh, the Czech Republic, Czechia, whatever you want to call it, for uh, a week, uh, essentially driving through the country, uh, you know, from Bohemia through Moravia back up into Bohemia. It was sensational. But just a way to and I, I guess the the idea for the story came from the fact that you can learn so much obviously just by being on the ground in a place because you know you might someone might give you a tip and they might tell you okay there's this brilliant architect you've got to go see a 8000 in in southern czechia uh you visit them uh have a have a conversation with them about their latest work uh, a philharmonic hall for instance this is exactly what i did by the way <laughs> a philharmonic hall you talk to them a little bit more and they're like well you've got to you've got to drive a couple of hours uh further east and and you you'll come across another some other architects chibik christoph who weren't necessarily on our radar you talk to them you learn a little bit about their work they might point you in the direction of a furniture maker all of a sudden you've you've started to make all these connections in a country that you wouldn't have had otherwise if you were just going off a, a single tip or maybe a, a phone call so so the story itself kind of snowballed over the course of the week and we actually ended up we, we could have written a book on it tyler really we really could have written a book on it but it was a chance to i guess connect with uh you know the Czech people and and their their designing and, and making heritage, uh, you know, and how that's evolved through time. So, looking at you know visiting buildings from the 18th century through to you know rehabilitated communist structures through to you know this emerging crop of of young architects who are really filling a void uh, that has sort of emerged as as you know the 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 architects that were practicing in the in the 90s after the Velvet Revolution came in as those guys sort of start to retire. There's this new bunch of 30 and 40 year old designers that are, that are emerging uh, in the country. And Nick, what was, what is most outstanding for you, not just in terms of what you brought to page, but just impressions, because you're spending a lot of time, obviously, um, in, in key headline design markets, mm. uh, of course, in Italy, in Germany, uh, in Spain, in, in, in Portugal um, as well. But, we, you know, we go east, and of course, we know that, you know, Poland uh, is, is so important as, as a huge manufacturing base for, of course, a number of big brands. But, you know, then you go to the Czech Republic. Uh, what was maybe the surprise? aspects for you I think I think what surprised me most about it because again you, you touched on Poland there and they're they're making very nice furniture at scale for you know some of our favorite Danish and Italian brands are, are having you know a lot of work done out in Poland but Czechia struck me as it was a country that maybe isn't producing on scale in in the same way that Poland is it seems to be much more Czech furniture makers making with Czech people. So it, it is still very much focused on the brands in the country and in terms of production. So you know, you look at you look at the likes of Ton who I who I visited, you know, this this amazing uh I guess renowned chair maker is, is probably what you'd go for. But you know, they're still very much making in the same tradition that they have been for 150 years. It's it's not like additional factories have popped up around them and they're white labeling white labeling products for for other brands. They are making for themselves. And it was the same across the country. Even, even uh, you know, in, in Prague, I went through 
uh, Repete, which is a, a bicycle manufacturer, they talked about the fact that you know there's this they're essentially poaching engineers from Skoda. Uh, you've got uh, there was a, there was another bag maker, Brassi and Brassi, and they are still making bags by hand for Czech people with Czech designers. So it, it's very much still focused on the country, and I don't know if if that's that's necessarily a product of. Uh, you know, I guess their their history and the fact that they're coming out of, uh, I mean, in in many ways still finding their feet thirty or forty years on after after the Velvet Revolution, but it's still very much focused on on Czechia and making for Czech people, which which is what I perhaps found so fascinating. And and you even look at that how that's reflected in their architecture practices. All of these studios, I mean, A eight thousand was one I re- referenced. Chibit Christoph's one I one I referenced. Mjolk is another one. They they could be world leading studios but they're really focused on their on their work in their own country. Nick Mini, so design editor in London. Um, just uh, stick around for us if you could. We'll come back to you in a moment, but we're going to head to Tel Aviv right now. Uh, we have, uh, we have. I'm sorry, Alison Summer, uh, journalist uh, for Haaretz, uh, is on the line for us uh, in in Tel Aviv just to to bring us uh, up to speed, uh, of course, on the stories that uh, are unfolding, of course, uh, in in Gaza and and Israel proper as well. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Also, just, uh, of course, uh, we have monitors uh, on, and of course, this is a story which has been uh, rolling with us uh, certainly for 24 hours plus uh, now. Yeah, if we're to look at uh, the, the front pages and, uh, and also the Israeli outlets uh, this morning, uh, what, what is the defining feature of the story? Go- going into the program today, we were saying that, of course, you know, outside of Israel, uh, you know, the, the key word that's coming up is this sense of, of surprise being blindsided. No one saw this coming, um, but maybe a little bit closer to the ground. What is the narrative in Israel? Well, yesterday was a day of chaos and the fog of war. Um, we woke up to sirens at six in the morning. Um, we found out there were rocket attacks, and but very quickly it became clear that this was not, and I put in quotation marks, just another situation with rocket attacks in Gaza, that it was far more serious and devastating, that the rockets seemed to be, you know, basically a distraction, um, and that the, the main story, the main um, uh, devastating reality was that... Um, major uh, invasion across the border from Gaza had happened. Jeeps, motorcycles, they'd gone into more than 14 different communities, taken over in many cases some of these small kibbutzim and villages, um, rampaged um, what was an all-night um, uh, mass rave party of 3,000 people, start, surrounded it from all sides and began shooting. And there were essentially uh, murders, massacres, and mass kidnappings. People have been dragged across the border from Gaza, including old women, including children, um, uh, groups of people. <clears throat> and uh, we don't know the exact numbers yet, but <clears throat> we have hundreds dead. We have over a thousand wounded in this attack, and we have an unknown number, which is probably a very large number of Israelis being held hostage in yeah. Gaza. Um, Allison, just uh, you mentioned the, the aspect of, of fog of war, um, and of course, the fog of war becomes more amplified today uh, when, of course, you know both sides have so many additional communication channels uh, to use. Now, you talk about, uh, of course, uh, hostages that have been that have been taken, Israeli hostages, uh, and reports speak in terms of dozens, but I think if you listen to uh, the mouthpieces from Hamas, uh, they're, they're talking about, you know, uh, numbers which are exponentially larger than, than dozens. And I'm wondering if there's any firm fix on how many people are actually missing at the moment. 
there is no firm fix like that. All, you know, all we can do is calculate by the number of people who we've lost contact with. Now, in some cases, for example, a friend of mine, her son was missing. She hadn't reached him all day from a kibbutz in the south called Kibbutz Cholit. Um, she believed he was kidnapped for a long period of time overnight. And then this morning, um, I read on her social media channels that his body had been found and he'd been killed. So, um, you know, this is being compared, the, the surprise element is being compared to the Yom Kippur War 50 years ago. But it's a little bit more traumatic because the Egyptian forces kept very close track of who their prisoners of war was. People knew immediately that their family members had either been killed or were being uh, held prisoner. And here uh, we believe that the uh, issue of who the fate of people is going to be used as some sort of a playing card in the negotiation. So it's going to be a very long period, painful uh, time of unknown and not knowing exactly who is being held hostage, where, who's alive, who's dead and in what condition they are. I'm keen to hear from a news gathering point of view for a news outlet uh, and, of course, a newspaper of a record like Haaretz. Um, how, how difficult is it uh, for you in terms of, of, of access on the ground uh, right now? Obviously, a very volatile situation. But are, are you already in a situation where you are um, embedded with Israeli defense forces yet? Uh, and and how, how close can an accredited journalist uh, be to this story right now, especially from an Israeli outlet? Well, it's such a small country, you have to understand. So even if people aren't embedded themselves there, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, fathers are in the forces. So it's, there's really almost no distance between journalists and the story in, uh, in these cases. You know, the journalists themselves are called up for military service. I'll tell you how close we are to the story. At Haaretz, our diplomatic correspondent, Amir Tibon, uh, lives on the Gaza border. He was huddled in his um, uh, um, miklat, in his uh, sheltered room for the entire day. His father, who is a general in the army, organized a commando force and basically went in there and rescued his son and, uh, and grandchildren himself. So there's just no distance between the journalists and between the story. Um, we, uh, in order to get reliable information, usually, you know, uh, wait for confirmation from the spokesman. All military information has to go through the, the military censor, but uh, we're extremely close to the story and, uh, and all of its twists and turns. Um, and, and the mood one day uh, later, of course, it's, it's a dominating story, but it, you, it's interesting how you talk about also proximity uh, to it to it as well. Uh, does it does it feel like there is a, a lid on things uh, currently? I mean, of course, we know that there are strikes going in. We're watching images of, of you know, entire, uh, you know, low rise and even skyscrapers Im- imploding um, across uh, across the border uh, right now. Uh, but how, how does the mood feel in terms of, of you know, Israeli forces uh, having a grip on things? Um, well, what's having a grip on things, really, because what's happening is Israel is extracting a price for what Hamas just did. Hamas crossed a red line that Israel never believed they would ever cross. That had to do with the element of surprise, why Israel was so surprised. They did not think that there would be a daring um, uh, operation of this, of this scale. Obviously, if they had, they would have been uh, prepared for it. 
So, um, yes, there's going to be a devastating, devastating uh, attack and, you know, continuing retaliatory attacks on Gaza. But no matter, you know, how much devastation is uh, is rained on the other side, it is not going to correct to make up for um, the terrible failure of the Israeli military and the Israeli political uh, leadership, um, you know, leading up to uh, leading up to yesterday. But I think that um, there's going to be strong support for as much force as needs to be um, as needs to be taken in order to send a message that what happened was absolutely unacceptable and can't happen again. And uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu pretty much said those words on television without admitting failure. But um, he, in his subtext, he admitted failure by saying these things should never happen. And I will try to make sure he didn't say he said I will make sure, but nobody really believes that he could, you know, guarantee a thing like that. I will make sure it never happens again. Uh, and just on that, uh, it's, of course, not going to be next week or the week after. Uh, but do you see uh, really a, a, a formal uh, period of, call it a tribunal, uh, you know, certainly um, a, some type of inquest into how this happens? Because, of course, the, the other down page story is, yeah, many uh, commenters from the side, former, former generals, uh, people within the intelligence services saying there will be a significant head rolling moment, uh, you know, both with... Uh, with with uh, the Israeli security services and and the military as well. Absolutely, and you know it was not a state secret. There were many, many, many media stories. While Israel, you know, we've had our own internal problems over the eight, last eight nine months with uh, demonstrations um, against this government and what is trying to do to democracy and the balance of powers inside the country. There were people, there were experts, and there were um, you know military correspondents going on saying we are in a very um, difficult um, military situation. There are a lot of dangers. There are a lot of danger signs. And maybe we shouldn't be so internally focused. Maybe we should be more aware of these dangers. I mean, it, it, again, you know, the, the sirens on some, uh, on some level were sounded and the political leadership seemed too fixated on their domestic agenda to be paying attention to these danger signs. So, yes, there will definitely be some sort of major inquiry when, you know, hopefully when, uh, when this settles and when uh, hostages are freed or exchanged or whatever to really delve into um, who is responsible for this and why it happened. There's no way that the Israeli public is not going to demand, account- to demand accountability after it's paid such a heavy price. Uh, Alison Summer, uh, journalist uh, for Haaretz, uh, joining us from Tel Aviv this morning. Uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, Emily, as you listen to a story like this, do you, do you uh, of course, think uh, already case studies and, and how, you, how you dig yourself uh, out of something like this? Because, uh, you know, as, as Alison is saying, you know, a, a red line was crossed, of course, of this aspect of, of surprise in this and, and you know, devastation on, on both sides. Um, in your world of of, of teaching uh, mediation to future diplomats, yep. uh, is this um, a little bit textbook as well? Uh, when you get to a point which is, of course, uh, this, this critical. Yeah, absolutely, it's a case that we're looking at, and we're just about to welcome our new cohort in the fall, and 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 we'll have participants from the region. So absolutely, I mean, I, I think the case and 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 the recent events um, demonstrate that one thing is theory, and then another thing is the reality of geopolitics and and 
practice. Um, so you might have the most kind of perfectly designed peace process in place, but geopolitical realities and realities on the ground often come in the way. Um, so it's easier said than done in in, uh, in the peace process world. And Israel-Palestine is a context where it's not just the conflict between uh, the two principal parties, um, but the regional international states to, that do have a stake in the outcome um, or in the lack of an outcome uh, through a process. And just in 08, 09, uh, when we had events in Gaza, I think it was around three weeks uh, that it took for the Egypt-brokered ceasefire agreement to be agreed. And now we're talking about something a much uh, bigger, a lot more complex of a conflict already. We're not just dealing with airstrikes. Um, so again, I would imagine that this will take a lot longer. Uh, Fabian, just from your side, as uh, an editor who, of course, um, is charged with uh, you know looking at at international uh, affairs, uh, of course, uh, you are uh, a news brand in Switzerland, uh, which is uh, round the clock digital, but also you still have uh, a weekly paper of, of record uh, that that comes out uh, as well. You also have a little bit of luxury of time um, to to maybe or you're shaking your maybe, maybe not maybe not <laughs> not uh, in, in, in in terms of online in terms of online no, but also. Uh, taking uh, also a bit of a longer view from an analysis uh, point, point of view, because, of course, we try to break these stories down on, on a minute by minute, second by second basis. Uh, but, uh, OK, you sort of your, your head nodding or head shaking uh, suggests that maybe there there is no luxury of, of longer analysis to look at a story like this. Exactly. But also at the same time, I'm working for Handelszeitung. So this is a business newspaper. I'm not sure um, if we really go deep yeah go deep yeah exactly and i'm covering international economics not anymore international affairs as i did but of course at, at the same time as you said though it's uh, you know whether you are a, a business title or not uh tensions in the region uh of course uh, impact share price uh and and impact markets uh as oh, well and and certainly you know it's, it's just I, I was not that far uh at the eastern end of the mediterranean uh th- this week but even you you sort of reach the borders of 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 the eu and you still feel the impact of whether it's hap- whatever's happening in Lebanon uh, or what what is happening, uh, yeah. of course, uh, south of the border, uh, in this case, Israel is uh, is significant. Exactly, you're absolutely right. I mean, every geopolitical conflict plays a huge role for like markets, for the economy, um, and not only geopolitical conflicts. Also, we can see like how how the uh, tumultuous events in the U.S. last week with like the Austin House Speaker um, could impact actually the world economy. So, I mean, we live in a global world, so this definitely is a topic we all have to deal on. And we have to keep an eye on. Um, on the topic of keeping an eye on things, uh, just uh, gone 10.30 uh, here in Zurich, 9.30 back in London, uh, Emma Nelson, I believe you're there uh, with the news headlines. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Israel has warned its residents in Gaza to leave their homes ahead of what's believed to be a ground offensive against the Palestinian military group Hamas. 500 people died yesterday after Hamas launched a wave of rockets and sent fighters into Israel, with Israel then responding with airstrikes. Voters in the German state of Bavaria go to the polls today. They're taking part in parliamentary elections with the far-right AFD currently running second in opinion polls and hoping for success. Austria has unveiled its latest generation of sleeper train. The first of 33 could come into service as early as December. It will connect the Austrian cities of Vienna and Innsbruck to the German port of Hamburg.
And a farmer in Scotland was surprised to find her two goats had broken into her house and had taken up residence on her lounge rug. Catherine Mackenzie was woken in the early hours to find the goats, called Chaz and Dave, had worked out how to open the door with their hooves, had devoured a bunch of flowers and had started to eat her table. Miss Mackenzie also claims the pair had been helped in their escape by her two horses, who reportedly leaned against a fence to let them out of their enclosure. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Uh, what do you think is going on in that household uh, exactly? <laughs> Emma, break it down for us. I think sabotage. My goodness. <laughs> wow. Pure sabotage. I think we should get Nick in to try and redesign a goat-proof table. Yeah, <laughs> Nick, don't you think that there are, there are some devices, at least some, some, yeah, I would say some uh, more advanced locks uh, that uh, are, are sort of, you know, goat uh, tamper, tamper-proof? I think so. I mean, we were even, we were talking earlier about, Emma and I off-air, we're talking about, like, the difficulty of working light switches sometimes. I can, I don't know how many hotel rooms I've been into where I can't work out how to turn on the lights, and yet we've got goats perfectly capable of opening doors. I'm, I'm kind of confused. There's, like, there's this huge gap in, in how easy it is to work what should be very, very basic features in a home. So maybe there's, maybe there's something to learn from this. Yeah, well, th- there could be. And I think your, your whole topic about uh, the light switch uh, issue is, is, is a significant one because I think we always talk about, uh, you know, do hotels uh, really need digital screens when you just want to uh, turn the bathroom light on? In fact... <laughs> There's a very good story uh, in uh, in today's uh, NZZ, and it's uh, the headline is a Swiss curiosity, and it's about Feller. Uh, so Feller is a, a light switch company. Here's a great story. This is one for you, Nick. It says um, it's, it's generally the company is is unknown, but they control 85 percent of the light switch market in Switzerland, and and they're famous. They're just famous for the sort of the, just the classic, you know, on off, you know, white ceramic uh, you know, uh, switch that you see at every door. But I love that idea of controlling 85 percent uh, in a market. Like Switzerland, are they the, li- are they the slightly rounded square? They've got switches? exactly. Yeah. They've got slightly rounded uh, edges, you know. And it, because yeah, that that is that's pretty much all there is I mean, uh, in this in this country. That's um, but again, it goes back to also just you know. And listen, very easy for a goat uh, to operate uh, as well. Uh, it, it, def- it definitely plays into uh, the uh, the agrarian nature of this country. Maybe that's the benchmark. Well. Maybe that's who we need to be testing light switches on. Like, if a goat can operate it, it's good to go. You know that I think maybe that's. That's the next step in, in our testing process. I don't process. know, though. It might be what might be all right for a goat might be beyond us mere humans. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, listen, I want to just do a very, very quick stropple because, Emma, you've, you've you flagged the story up twice. It's, it's an ongoing theme. Nick, it could have been part of your story uh, almost uh, when you were out of the Czech Republic. And this is, of course, uh, that ÖBB, the, the Austrian uh, Federal Rail Service, uh, as you've said, they are the, the leaders in Europe when it comes to overnight rail travel. Uh, so I just want to do a, a quick poll uh, around the table. I also, uh, well, we'll start with Emily. Overnight trains, they've got them in Finland uh, as well. Are you a fan? I'm a huge fan, not in Finland, but in Europe. Okay. Uh, and so you've tried the, the, the OBB night jet? I've tried to Berlin, um, to Vienna, works really well. And actually also to southern Italy. Um, excellent. Fabian, you're nodding, yes? Exactly the same. I've taken exactly the same route. And? It's, it's great. I love it. And do you uh, go for sort of private car? Do you, or do you want to be sort of mixed in with bunks, uh, you know, full of, uh, full of strangers? Uh, oh, I'm, I'm fine with like, I'm not fine with like mixed gender, but I'm fine like with mixed bunks and like having like the four bed. Works for you. Whatever. Yeah. Also, you can book it a little bit like more short term. Well, for the for the private apartments, uh, for the private apartments in the in the train, you have to book like quite early. Emma, I don't even need to ask so. you, and I, <laughs> I, and I think I know the answer with Nick as well. 
I mean, lock me in. I'm, I'm absolutely there. Probably, uh, I don't need to recreate the hostel room experience. I'm much more looking for a, a single cabin. I've, I've already had enough conversations you with can... divorcees about why they're finding themselves in this particular hostel in Germany, so I'll, I'll pass on the group sharing. A guard can always be bribed. <laughs> I don't know where we're going with that, Emma. <laughs> if you want privacy, it can be done. Okay. I've seen Emma, it done. You, I've have, done you it. Tri- have you tried the night jet? No, I haven't. Uh, okay. The one I would like to get back into service is the Nice to Rome one. That was quite amazing. That Obviously, it's not a baby, but that was that was a, a journey beyond. And I remember my husband and I once took it to uh, when we were on holiday. Actually, we took a mini break from a holiday, and we climbed into a couchette, and we were joined by two rather excitable uh, Danish ladies. This is not where I expected one us called, to go. One called Winnie, and the other lady was called I know Bra, and it was wonderful fun all night. Well, I have no bra. <laughs> Her name was Ino Bra. Oh, it stop great. it. It was honestly, seriously. <laughs> Emma, just, uh, just tell us, and Nick as well, because uh, I, I want to uh, bring in our next guest in a moment. If we, uh, if we ventured a little bit uh, north of Midori House, uh, I, I imagine uh, that things are, are fully uh, underway because a freeze is upon us. Can you, can you feel the, uh, the freeze art fair uh, moment already in London? Uh, lots of fancy outfits, uh, good footwear going up and down Children Street? I, I mean, I think you can see it instantly, just the, the looks uh, are elevated. Uh, and I, I, I mean, it, it's it's a very, very subtle thing, but all of a sudden, you know, there just seem to be more high heels on the street. I don't know why. Oh, you know. I don't know if they're high. They're just mad. And everyone looks so miserable, Tyler. I've never quite worked this one out. Why everybody who's dealing in beautiful things looks as if the end of the world is nigh. I and mean, you get real sulks going on on Chiltern Street down here in London. Well, that, that is a constituency of, of the art crowd. Uh, and I'm, I want to uh, bring in uh, Aurelia uh, Rauch, of course, uh, a, a familiar voice, uh, not just around radio, uh, also recently on stage at our Quality of Life conference uh, in uh, Munich. Uh, Aurelia is also the creative director at uh, Bergos uh, Bank uh, here in Zurich, but has, of course, a particular focus on the art market. You're on your way to London uh, uh, for, for the start of Freeze. Let's, let's talk about uh, art fashion. And, and, and sulky art-faced people as well. Is there, any, is there any truth? Is there any truth in this, Aurelia? Oh my God, I love it. Hey, good morning, Tyler. Thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm, I'm considering myself thoroughly warned. I didn't know that everybody is so very, uh, yeah, grim-looking these days. Yeah. Usually, the art is a good thing. Well, I can say Aurelia is, is, is in a wonderful sort of, you know, camel uh, and uh, ecru ensemble this morning, uh, looking very, <laughs> very sunny-faced. Uh, Nick and, and Emma. So uh, please watch out for her uh, when. when when she's in the neighborhood. And <laughs> um, maybe I just, I wanted to start uh, earlier, just, uh, you know, of course, it, there is, I mean, it almost feels like the, the full schedule or the, at least the full calendar is just full of art fairs uh, right now. You think, oh my goodness, like, you know, I've, I've missed Madrid uh, or I've missed London, I've missed Seoul, uh, Hong Kong, wherever it may be. Um, for those who maybe have not been to an art fair. And an art fair, when we're talking about this, is about, you know, uh, hundreds of booths uh, and, and of course, sellers. This is, this is about commerce. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be a little bit in- intimidating. M- must it be? It is. It is absolutely overwhelming, I would say. Not only intimidating, it's just so much to handle. And it's not just the fair itself. There's always so much happening around it, right? We have collateral fairs, smaller ones, maybe more up-and-coming ones that are happening at the same time. The galleries are bringing on their best and their brightest. The auction houses often do too. So there's just a lot to cover. It's more than just the fair, I'd say. And I think 
you know, a good thing if you haven't been to an art fair is just to kind of know what you're getting yourself into. It is completely overwhelming in terms of just sheer amount of work you need to see, right? So maybe a good tip for somebody who's uh, daring to go to Freeze this weekend, or actually it will be it will be next, this coming weekend, that it's open to the public. It's opening on Wednesday with the VIP preview. And then you can go uh, up to the fair on, on the weekend if you'd like. It's absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's in the park. There's actually two parts to Freeze. It's Freeze Master which is showing, you know, more, uh, well, it's actually not that old at all. I think the cutoff is 2002 now. Um, and then the more contemporary works in the freeze proper fair. And honestly, a good thing for me always to say to people, if they want to, if they're actually thinking about buying something, just be aware that there might not be that much to get. These fairs are really fast. You have to act super quick. So if you're unprepared, if you just want to kind of go in, take a look around and see what you like and go out with it, unlikely at these kinds of affairs so know your budget know what you're into and maybe just don't expect too much in terms of buying power for yourself if you haven't really been kind of around the block with fairs yet uh, it's fantastic to see and get orientation i think that's great and i here's a little tip for everybody who's going who's interested in the work keep a system in terms of how you look at the work so i always do a picture of the work and then picture of the label because you keep, if you see something new you will never be able to remember who the artist was, why you liked it, if you don't have a sort of determined system of how to keep track of what you're seeing. So that's my little tip. Uh, and do you have any sense uh, how much, um, of course, is done, you know, whether it's on the preview evenings, uh, on those, those first private days, um, versus how much of it is also... Yeah, I, I, let's say a show window uh, for, of course, just the galleries in general that, okay, you go there, uh, you strike up a conversation, and at a later date, you, you find yourself in Antwerp or you, or you find yourself back in Paris, then having a more considered discussion with the gallerist. That's exactly what happens. That's spot on. I mean, really, these, these fair moments, they are really little kind of group shows, right? So every gallery that goes can bring on a good selection of what they want to show and uh, you very much make contacts and this is the, this is the birthing place of a lot of good relationships for the years to come so it's uh, it's sort of a trigger moment i would say and you you start these conversations and i've seen i mean i have to say i've been doing this for such a long time and i've seen the most insightful and like little crazy moments at these booths right like such determination of people's like you want to buy this yes or no get out if not you know kind of very strong and unfair fast-paced but yeah it's definitely where where relationships are made too yeah uh, and just to tell us uh, state of the market of course you are at most of these uh, major fairs we're talking about of course the, the top end of market we're talking about something which of course is is you know makes up part of the constellation of uh, you could say sort of of, of luxury a part of the luxury sector yeah uh, and we know the luxury uh, industry is booming. Um, are we in a world of record prices and craziness, or are we in a bit of a settle down, uh, more pragmatic period, would you say? That's a very good question. I think, you know, on the upper scale of all of this, there's always these couple works that are like in the double digit million parts, right? And they are the sort of trailblazing big, big, big tickets. You have, I don't know, maybe a Rothko for 60 million or something like that. But those are more considerate placements generally, right? You wouldn't bring a work like that to the fair and expect somebody to walk in and buy it, of course. And I think in, the, in terms of like what the market is made of, especially for these fairs, 
we are talking about ticket prices like 50,000 to 150,000 to 300. You know, the, this is really where the market is happening and where a lot of the of the commerce part is happening. Not so much in the double digit millions. Those are outstanding pieces. And you're saying that sort of like whatever 30, 50,000 territory because then there is significant well, or at least reasonable room then uh, for uh, especially for collectors and people who are in this for a uh, as as a business, you could say mm-hmm. um, that there can be decent multiples on top of that. Absolutely, and I think this is also a phenomenon of these fairs that you're kind of hunting for the next the next big thing, the next artist, somebody you've may have seen at a different fair, and now it's popping up again, and you kind of formulate your opinion about it. I think this sort of like hunting spirit in, within collectors is strong and 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 very relevant. Uh, and maybe just before we go. Uh, Tell us, uh, does uh, Aurelia Rauch have a, yeah, maybe just, you know, part of, of your own little rule book uh, when you go into, you know, a gallerist booth and uh, and you look at a piece, uh, how much of it is, is value versus just, I love this and I'm happy to see this on my wall for the next 10 years? Oh, it's the latter. And you know why? Because really sort of liking it is the inherent currency of a, of a piece. If you like it, somebody else will too. And that will, you know, supply and demand, the demand for a piece of Art is always in its appeal, not its beauty, but this sort of like gutsy feeling about it that you just love that thing and you want to have it, right? So if, if that's initiated in you, then it probably can also be sparked in somebody else and that makes the value go up. So it's important that that lives in the piece for you. Okay, well, Aurelia, maybe we can do a check-in uh, next weekend as well. Yeah, I'd love uh, that. We'll have a bit of a recap. We have to let you go because I believe you have a dressage event. Not your, not your <laughs> dressage event to get to, but... It's true. I'm, I'm going to look at horse riding right now. Yes. Okay, well, you're not looking so horsey, which I think is maybe a good thing as, uh, <laughs> as well this morning. Aurelia Rauch, a creative director at Bergos Bank. Very good to see you this morning. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Tyler. Uh, just gone 1044 uh, here in Zurich. Uh, we're heading uh, to Marseille right now uh, to speak to our North Africa correspondent, Mary Fitzgerald. Gerald uh, is on the line uh, for us. Good morning, Mary. Good morning from sunny Marseille. Now, oh, very good to, to hear that it's uh, sunny and uh, probably summer also uh, in enduring uh, there. Of course, uh, yeah, you've been listening. Uh, the program, of course, has been dominated uh, a little bit by, of course, events uh, in, uh, in in Israel uh, and, and Gaza this morning. Uh, but if we're to uh, look at the um, the French press uh, today, uh, whether it's uh, on your stretch of the Mediterranean or, or further north, what's making headlines? Well, actually, today is is quite a, a special day in terms of the French media because uh, we have the launch of a new print uh, newspaper, a new print uh, Sunday, uh, La Tribune Dimanche. Um, and actually, I have the the paper in front of me right now, and it's it's interesting because, of course, uh, unsurprisingly. Um, the conflict in uh, in Israel and Palestine is dominating the front page. But the editorial uh, from uh, editor Bruno Judy is very interesting in that he's basically telling his new readers, you have just committed a revolutionary act, buying a paper newspaper in 2023. And the background to this uh, new Sunday is very interesting because it's quite political as well. The main um, funder of this new newspaper is Rodolphe Sade, who is the owner of CMA, CGM, uh, one of the world's biggest uh, shipping companies headquartered here in, in Marseille. Uh, Sadi is very close to, uh, to Macron. And basically, this newspaper is um, essentially a rival to the long-standing French Sunday, uh, the GDD, Le Journal du Dimanche, which has been bought by uh, Vincent Bolloré, a media mogul here in, in France, who is very much associated with more conservative, um, 
politics. Uh, his media outlets last year very much promoted the far-right candidate, uh, Eric Zemmour. So the, the owner of my local newspaper kiosk, uh, when I was buying the newspaper this morning, said to me, well, actually, this is a case of Marseille versus Brittany, because, of course, Sade coming from Marseille and uh, Bellori, who's from uh, Brittany. So really interesting in terms of the politics behind this new newspaper. And of course, the question of how well this newspaper is going to do, given that the Sunday market here is already quite crowded. Just, uh, Mary, uh, very difficult to, uh, to of course, paint a picture of a newspaper on radio, but <laughs> give it your best shot. Is it, uh, is, it, is it tabloid in format? Is it broadsheet? Is it multi-section? Uh, do I have a supplement with it? Because it's interesting, you mentioned uh, the Journal du Dimanche it has, has, has a, a very yeah, nice uh, you know, supplement uh, component uh, to it. The way the, way the way the whole paper is, is really positioned um, is that, uh, and I'm talking about the JDD, is it's positioned almost to be sort of a seven-day-a-week seven title that you carry around with you, um, has uh, has the Tribune Dimanche d- gone for a similar format in that sense? So the in terms of the size, it's the so-called European uh, format. So uh, British readers, similar format to, to The Guardian in terms of the, the size. Um, it's uh, quite uh, small in that it's uh, today it's like 47 pages. Um, and the the conflict in Israel and Palestine dominates the first five pages. But you have a good mix in terms of the rest of the paper. It's it's politics, domestic politics here in France. There's a lengthy Q and A with uh, Christine Lagarde, the president of the European Central Bank, but also a good mix as well of of lifestyle uh, features, kind of typical um, Sunday Sunday day uh, Sunday mix. Yeah. Mary, I just want to bring in uh, Fabian Kinzelman uh, because, uh, of course, uh, she's uh, uh, and it's interesting because the Tribune also grew out of being uh, an economics uh, business focused uh, newspaper and they go to a Sunday. Are you encouraged uh, when you hear that uh, here we are 20 coming to the back end of 2023 and you you have a, a new Sunday newspaper launch? Who would have thought? I'm definitely not surprised. I mean, that's what all the publishers are going for now because the Sunday newspapers, the weekend editions are the only ones which still have like a decent print share and are not like declining like crazy. So that's where you can still make money and where you can advertise great. Um, so I'm not that surprised. Uh, Mary, as you mentioned, uh, Mr. Sade, of course, uh, they, they, the family controls uh, probably about the second or third biggest uh, container and shipping company uh, in, in the world, uh, headquartered out of Marseille. But interesting as well that this is a family uh, that, uh, that left Lebanon uh, dur- during the conflict uh, and, and set up shop uh, in, uh, in, in the city where you are at the moment, in, in Marseille. Um, is, there, is there probably a, a pride sense as well this becomes a bit of a, a new type of trophy uh, for the family to have because this is this seems to be that you know it is sort of the story of France uh, you know uh, critically and and otherwise that uh, this is a nation where some of the big all, well not all of the biggest companies but most of the biggest companies seem to have a, a media outlet of their own. Indeed, and you know the the place of the Sade family here in Marseille is very interesting, and many people would hold it up. The family story is kind of a very kind of Marseille success story in in many respects, and they are the single biggest employer in the city. The Sade family um, have actually bought a number of other media outlets over the last year or two. So they bought bought one of the leading dailies here, La Provence. Um, so it's interesting that they've been moving into into the media sphere. And just going back to the editorial in today's newspaper, I 
I thought it was quite interesting because the editor describes the Tribune as basically a Republican journal. And he said, our ambition is uh, not to unnecessarily um, amplify the polarization and radicalization of, of the debate. And I think that's really interesting given the extent of the polarization we've seen in France in recent years, in, in media, but also the wider public discourse, that they want to basically plot that kind of middle ground. So it'll be really interesting to see how that goes. Uh, and just uh, in the interest of time, because, uh, of course, we spent uh, a little bit of time in Tel Aviv earlier, um, I want to um, maybe uh, go to an, another sort of uniquely Marseille story. It has, of course, uh, global resonance. Uh, but this is you filed an earlier um, piece about this as well um, in uh, in the Monocle Minute. And this was uh, about these rooftop days uh, that have been uh, occurring. Uh, tell us uh, about this uh, urbanist phenomena. So this is a really interesting um, initiative uh, that we've had in Marseille for the last couple of years, um, where it's basically rooftop days where um, municipal authorities, businesses and residents are encouraged to think of creative ways to reinvent rooftops as communal spaces. Now, by this, they mean, uh, you know, more public amenities as opposed to bars and restaurants. So talking about how in densely populated cities like Marseille, Rooftop spaces can be transformed into urban gardens, outdoor gyms, or, or social venues. And what's really interesting is I learned just recently about the European Creative Rooftop Network, uh, which was founded in 2019. It comprises nine members, including Barcelona, Amsterdam, Faro, and Nicosia. And basically, it's the same idea, encouraging people to think of this kind of unused space that is totally underutilized, and how one can kind of think of reinventing the these, these spaces. Last night, I was at an event to mark the end of Marseille's rooftop days. It was at Le Corbusier City Radius on the, the rooftop, of course. And it was really interesting talking to people there in terms of the extent to which there's buy-in now here in Marseille at the City Hall to think about these spaces and see how they can be utilized. Uh, Mary Fitzgerald, our correspondent uh, in Marseille for us this morning. Thank you very, very much uh, for that. It's 10.52 here in Zurich. Um, Emily, do you have a rooftop to uh, open up um, to the city? I do. We have a lovely rooftop overlooking the sea. So absolutely the hardship conditions of Switzerland. Have you had anything to offer? Uh, no rooftop. No. Just balcony? a very nice, yeah, very nice terrace and a very nice balcony. Okay. All right. Um, well, well may, and actually, you think about actually all the rooftops around here. Maybe Zurich should be a signatory to this. Oh, did they, they have a rooftop day. They do have a rooftop day. Sorry, I've, I've yeah, missed yeah, yeah. it. But it doesn't sound like they're part of this confederation, so they, they need to be talking to the city of Marseille, I guess. Maybe the Swiss like to keep their rooftops to themselves. Yeah, could, could, could be. <laughs> uh, just uh, uh, before uh, we get to the end of the program, uh, we had our lovely uh, Herbstmarkt uh, here last week, and um, it was a wonderful moment uh, to meet uh, Jovan Jelovec, uh, who joins us uh, right now. Uh, because Jovan was talking about the wonderful speakers that we have in this space. He said, we've, we've really got a top spec environment when it comes to great audio. Uh, but he said he could outdo us. Uh, and he could outdo us with a, a new product that he's brought uh, to market uh, called Hidden Sound. Good morning. Very nice to see you. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Now tell us uh, what, what, it, what is Hidden Sound? Uh, what can it do? Uh, and how can it potentially match or outgun uh, our, our fantastic German speakers, uh, of course, which are fixed to the walls here? Yeah, that, that's one of the problems that they're fixed to the walls. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, starting uh, with such a challenge, of course. 
um, to prove that we uh, could possibly produce speakers uh, or sound systems which we are doing that are better than yours, which is almost impossible. You have, of course, an impeccable uh, uh, sound system here. But uh, this sound system, like all the recoil sound system, which uh, comprise 99% of the sound system of the world, are monodirectional. And they have this so-called white spots because they can, uh, thanks to the laws of physics, they can uh, air their sound only up to 60 degrees. And you have to have a very clever setup in order to to um, prevent people sitting in the spaces not hearing good sound. So uh, we met, Vesna and I, who are the partners in, in sound, met with an absolutely fantastic sound engineer from Belgrade, Serbia, who we met at our event, Belgrade Design Week, which we produced for, for the last 15 years, um, who came and said, okay, guys, you're fantastic into showing design and architecture, but what about sound design? Here is a project I have. So we went into his garage. It was a real garage moment, like, um, like Steve Wozniak, uh, Steve Jobs uh, with the first Apple. And we almost died. Uh, there were two, two things we thought we were going to die of electrocution or of the beauty of the sound. And uh, he invented a completely new system, which is, in my opinion, from the researches that we have done, maybe the first ever true 360 degree sound that you, which you can place anywhere in a space, which you can move around and that uh, emanates uh, sound basically without these white spots, so-called, but in a beautiful audiophile hi-fi uh, manner. Uh, and this is really amazing. It's a real innovation. It's based on two technologies which are relatively uh, innovative because they exist since 30, 40 years, but nobody used them in, in a unison combination so far. It's DML. Uh, which is the technology behind these amazing speakers, uh, which allow themselves to be eight millimeters thin. It's absolutely ridiculous. You don't believe that they create such a, such a sound, and it's also the same size of an iPhone and the same and the same uh, thickness of an iPhone. And it's DSP, uh, which is, for example, uh, the digital sound processing technology that Bose or Sonos and all these other digital uh, guys are using, but they don't have these DML speakers to then have this absolutely amazing 360 sound around. So, so the solution was that we ended up after five years of development with an absolutely minimal form, eight millimeter thin, the size of an iPhone or a tablet, with an absolutely astonishing sound like almost your speakers. And, and, and you said, so developed uh, in, uh, in, in, in Belgrade? No, developed, uh, he developed the white paper and the, and the scientific uh, background for it in Belgrade, in Serbia, with the amazing support of the faculty of, of electronics there, from those golden socialist times when there was a lot of investment into, into science, into real science, not commercial science. They have this amazing sound Labs, uh, with an amazing tradition of these sound engineers. Belgrade is a sort of Nashville, nobody knows, for this all sort of folksy music that starts at Vienna and ends somewhere in Istanbul. So more than 200 million people are producing sound in Belgrade. It's, it's an incredible generation of uh, old school sound engineers where Igor comes from. And then we, he came here to Zurich, and in the last five years we designed it here in Zurich. So it's actually a sort of best of both worlds combining it together, because we could never pay the hours uh, in the West ne uh, necessary to develop such a product. But then in the same time we, could, uh, we were able to use the cutting-edge design experience that we have here in Zurich. So the two, the two combined created this amazing product. Uh, and just uh, quickly, as we're hurtling to the end of the program, uh, price point, uh, if I want to fit out uh, a good size living room, uh, and of course, where can 
people find the product. This is our, uh, our, our cherry on the top. Because of this new technology, it's amazingly affordable. It's one of our missions to bring really high quality audiophile hi-fi sound really to bring it to the people to to demo, de democratize it a small set which is the size of the uh, iphones costs around 1200 uh, swiss francs and a bigger set which is uh, enough for about 100 square meters living room is about 2000 swiss francs which is 10 or 20 times less than what the usual audiofi hi-fi uh, product would be it's amazing really and you can find it at hiddensound.ch thank you very much <laughs> Excellent. And if people want to see it in person, where can they go? Schöntalstraße 20. On Thursday, we just opened our first worldwide showroom to be followed with London and Dubai. Very good. Listeners, you can make your way to Zurich. We have to leave it uh, there. Jürgen uh, Jelovac uh, from Hidden Sound, thanks very much. Also to uh, Fabian Kinselman from the Handelszeitung this morning, Emily Sauer from ETH, Nick Manis back in London, and also Emma Nelson. Our program was also produced by Emma and Desiree Bendley. Our studio manager uh, is Steph Chungu back in London. And uh, also our thanks to Alison uh, Summer in uh, Tel Aviv, Aurelia Rauch and Mary Fitzgerald. I'm Tyler Brulé. We are back next week, uh, next Sunday indeed, and we'll see you then. Have a good uh, weekend. Goodbye.